Podcastle, episode 34, for November 18th, 2008. Clad in Gossamer, by Nancy Cress. Hello, this is Rachel Swirsky, Podcastle's editor. A few weeks ago, I mentioned that skill-based reality TV shows are my sports. What I didn't mention is that even though I like a bunch of them, my favorite is Project Runway. There is some dissension about that in my house. My husband prefers Top Chef. Well, sure, Top Chef is cool, but you can't taste a TV. Anyway, when the last season of Project Runway started, I did what probably thousands of other people did. And I thought to myself, you know, I know how to use a sewing machine. I know how to read a pattern. I know what kinds of clothes I like. I'll go make myself some dresses. Did you know that fabric stores carry Project Runway fabric brands? Yup. And there's also a whole line of Project Runway patterns, too. Anyway, I bought patterns and fabric, not Project Runway brand, in case you were wondering. And I carried them home and I started to sew. And yes, it turns out that I can make my own clothes, but sheesh, when you're ripping out your own botched seam while you watch the divas on Product Runway turn out a perfectly fitted evening gown in what looks like 10 minutes flat, well, it drives home something that I think has been plaguing people for as long as there's been a concept of clothes. As previous Project Runway winner Christian Siriano might put it, it's hard work looking fierce. Today's story is Clad in Gossamer by Nancy Cress, a riff on the traditional fairy tale, The Emperor's New Clothes. Nancy Cress is the author of 23 books and an uncountable number of short stories, many of which have been featured on our sister podcast, Escape Pod. She writes on her website that she lives in Rochester, New York, with the world's most spoiled toy poodle. Clad in Gossamer first appeared in Silver Birch Blood Moon, an anthology of rewritten fairy tales edited by Ellen Datlow and Terry Windling. It's read for us by Paul S. Jenkins of the RevUp Review, which you can find at revupreview.co.uk. Paul also writes reviews of the audio fiction that's broadcast on Podcastle, Pseudopod, and EscapePod at the online magazine The Fix, thefix-online.com. Links in this introduction can be found on our website. Visit us on the web at podcastle.org. Enjoy the story. Clad in Gossamer by Nancy Cress Of course, I knew they were scoundrels. I knew the moment I set eyes on them. Florian, naturally, would not have believed it. He trusted the many travellers to court, trusted the pages and serving women, trusted his two-faced advisers, distrusted only me. Like all of them, he takes my looks for who I am. You? Distinguish a scoundrel, he would have said, with that spew-making gentleness that conceals condescension. It is the condescension I cannot bear, and the patience. Let Florian be patient in hell, which was where these two rogues had come from. Fox-faced, quiet-voiced, elegant as ladies, sneaky as thieves, or courtiers. Florian would not have known what they were, but I knew and I did not tell Florian. Instead, I gazed innocently at the two foreign tailors in their beautiful velvet breeches and silken tunics and woven sashes with strange foreign designs. Tell me again, I said. 
the shorter, older one said smoothly, Garments in subtle colours like shaded sky, your highness, as finely spun and light to wear as spider-webs, yet warm, impervious to water, and impenetrable by stinging insects. I nodded eagerly, as if I believed this nonsense. And the magic? Ah, the magic! Tell him again, Sorrel. Sorrel, young and pasty-skinned, like one who never travels by day, recited, I was raised in a distant land, your highness, far from your beautiful kingdom. Indeed, he had an old accent. So does my father's fool. In my land there are many old magics. Is that not so, Teliano? I learned but a humble one, that of cloaking the truth in fancy dress and the lie in nakedness. The cloth that my master taught me to weave can be seen only by the pure of heart, men and women honest and true and fit for their posts. To all others it is invisible. I let myself lean forward eagerly, like the credulous simpleton they think I am. And if I had a coat of this clothing, a whole suit, Telliano said, a court suit, Sorrel said, or perhaps even a ceremonial robe, for perhaps Crown Prince Florian's betrothal procession? Most suitable, if I had this clothing, I broke in. Then I could tell who among my brother's courtiers served him honestly and truly, and who conspired against him. You could, Telliano, the more discreet. He dropped his eyes respectfully. And then, I said with the air of a dimwit, my royal brother the prince would admit me useful and make me his viceroy. Sorrel could not hide his smile. Telliano nodded solemnly. I let myself despise them both for despising me. There is no way Florian would ever admit me useful or make me anything. I will pay what you ask, I said happily, and wiped my nose on my sleeve like the stable louts whom I so unfortunately resemble, big and clumsy and grossly muscled. And if I am made viceroy, I will double your fee. The two scoundrels bowed low. We discussed fittings, colours, secrecy. They bowed themselves out. I sat in my chamber, thinking. Florian sent a page for me, a golden-curled, tongue-tied child who had forgotten his message before it reached me. I would have ignored it anyway. If this scheme worked, Florian would not trouble me past his betrothal day. I had tried a bribed huntsman. The assassin had failed. I had tried poison. A royal taster had died. I had tried turning our father against him. He out-talked me to the old rattlepate. Now all the court whispered of my failures. Prince Jasper the inept, Prince Jasper the butt, who looks like a stable lout and plots like a dimwit. But no longer. Bow, arrow, poison, treason. All had failed. I would try embroidery and silk. My brother's bride arrived from across the sea ten days before her betrothal procession. She arrived so robed and veiled that she looked like a silken haystack. Such is apparently the custom in her country. But my father and brother and I were to see her face after dinner, alone except for the guards thick around the king and his heir, to protect them from the other heir. I did not want to go. The dinner would be long. My brother would talk brilliantly, reducing me to nothing. My father's roomy old eyes would rest on Florian with that proud gleam that makes me wish to to do what I have been trying to do for a year now. My brother's bride would be just the sort of sweet-faced, soft-voiced, loving milksop to give him eternal devotion, popular approval and strong sons. Only it did not turn out like that. We sat over our wine after dinner, 
The long table cleared, the hall empty of servants, save for the sole musician hidden high in the gallery playing a flute. The bride was escorted in by her women. She was still heavily veiled. "'Let us greet your face properly, my daughter,' my father said. Beside him, Florian smiled encouragingly. Women are said to like him, despite his middling build, so puny beside my own. Narrower shoulders, four inches less in height, barely able to lift his own slight weight. I can lift twice my own. Yet Florian will be king. Come, daughter, my father urged. I eyed the door. The girl took a step forward and removed her veil. It uncovered not only her face and hair, but her shoulders as well. Her bodice was cut wide at the neck, low on her deep breasts. Masses of black hair tumbled around her painted face. Full, bright red lips, smoky black eyes, green on their thick lids. She smiled at us challengingly. "'Daughter, I—' uh, the king quavered, glanced at Florian, recovered himself. "'I welcome you to your new home.' "'Happy this woman to be in this kingdom,' the girl said. Her voice matched her face, smoky as a spitting fire. It was obvious the words had been memorised. She did not speak our language. She shot Florian, on my father's right, a bold look from those green-lidded eyes. Florian had gone pale. But he was, after all, a prince, damn his first-born soul. He stepped forward, smiled, and took the girl's hand. It was covered in jewelled rings like a prostitute's. The nails were long, wicked, and green. Florian said, "'Welcome, my betrothed.' Jealousy skewered me like a sword. She never glanced at me. Or did she? Throughout the short audience she kept her gaze on my father, the king, and my brother, the crown prince. But as I turned to go, after making my clumsy bow, I thought I felt those green-lidded eyes on my back, weighing and measuring as boldly as do the girls at the sign of the spotted cat. Those eyes on my back and lower. I will have her if I die for it. The weaving went forward in a secret chamber, visited by no one but me. For five days Teliano and Sorrel wove air, cut ether, fitted on my body nothing at all. Notice the colours, your highness, the scarlet here at the shoulder, shading into russet, the dull gold to highlight your noble calves. Notice how light the cloth, why you must feel as if you are wearing nothing at all. Notice the workmanship, the stitches themselves disappear. Notice the gold lace, the rich embroidery, the graceful drape. I agreed to it all, standing naked in the centre of the room. A room without mirrors. My long absences were noticed, of course. Nothing goes unnoticed at court. He will try another assassination, went the whispers gathered by my spies. Prince Florian had best look to his royal guards. Finally, Viceroy Madior... That tottery, sly old man stopped me in the courtyard. Your Highness. Yes, Viceroy. You were missed, sir, at council this morning. And why would that be, when none listened to my words there anyway? A bold speech, and to underline it I moved closer to the Viceroy, who shrank back. I could break his arm with one hand. I'm sure you're mistaken. The Prince asked for you. He wished your aid with... I am preparing something that will aid the Prince more than anyone or anything now in his kingdom. Madior's old eyes sharpened. He is no fool for all his bodily weakness. He would not have kept his post so long if he were. And may I ask? I pretended to hesitate. I don't know. But yes, you are such a trusted adviser of my brother. You should indeed know about this. 
Come with me, Viceroy. And I led him to the chamber, where my two rogues snipped and sewed and embroidered empty air. In the secret passageway, so clogged with dust that Madior's old lungs wheezed and coughed, I whispered, I have hired two sorcerers, great magicians in their own land, to make me a ceremonial robe for the betrothal procession. It is a magic robe. Only those who are fit for their posts, honest and true, can see the material. We will know, once and for all, who is a loyal servant of the crown, and who is not. The viceroy's reply, whatever it was, was lost in a fit of dusty coughing. But at the threshold of the chamber he stopped coughing. His eyes ran over my two scoundrels, their intent concentration, their elegant foreign clothes, the strange nonsense symbols on Sorrel's sash. Then the viceroy slowly approached the loom, the cutting table, the baskets for ribbons and lace. He inspected everything, his wrinkled face blank as the loom. For a moment I doubted. But no. Incredible, Viceroy Madior murmured. So subtle. View the cloth from one angle and it is one colour. View it from another and the colour shifts. I had him. Over the next five days I had them all. Chancellor of the Exchequer, Captain of the Guards, Minister of Justice, Chief Gentleman of the Bedchamber, lying grovellers all of them, afraid to admit they saw nothing. And Teliano bowed and smiled and explained, and Sorrel stitched, unsmiling, playing his part. While my brother's most trusted advisers, one by one, and sworn to a secrecy they would of course violate, displayed before me their two-faced fear. Almost I was sorry when the day of the betrothal procession arrived and my private little mummery was over. During the whole ten days I saw my brother's betrothed only once. It was at night, when she should not have been away from the women's quarters at all. She and her women, heavily veiled, moved quietly along the walk from the Blue Garden. Had they merely been for a moonlit stroll? But there was a gate at the far wall of the Blue Garden, and beyond lay shrouded woods. My brother's bride stopped on the stone path directly in front of me. She raised her veil. The black eyes, blue-lidded this time, searched my face. Her lips were very red, and her full, half-exposed breasts heaved. She did not smile. It was better that way. I was the one to smile, from my much greater height, and move my body a fraction of a step closer to hers. Immediately she lowered her veil. I had given away too much in front of her ladies. She hurried away, leaving me on the moonlit path, still smiling. She was the slut I had first thought her, and in another day she would be mine. The day of the betrothal procession, of course, dawned fine. Even the sun wished to stay close to my brother. I could do nothing about the sun, but those advisers who would sell their souls to keep their posts beside him, they would soon be damned by their very loyalty. The long walkway between castle and cathedral was hung with white flowers and thronged with courtiers, all eager for a first glimpse of their eventual queen. She would emerge from the cathedral, which in times long past had been a fort, then, escorted by the prince's brother, his royal highness Prince Jasper, she would walk slowly towards the dais, where sat the king and his heir, and her escort would be quite naked. I stood in the windowless, mirrorless secret chamber, letting the foreign rascals dress me in nothing. They draped and fussed and buttoned and tied, Teliano babbling like the practised fraud he was. How light and airy, your highness! How flattering to your broad shoulders, your lordly height!' 
Beyond the walls I heard the flutes and guitars begin to play. I made my way through the secret passageway to my chamber, and from there by underground tunnel to the cathedral. I emerged in the unused and deserted guardroom, took a deep breath, and walked to the antechamber where the processional party waited. A woman gasped, one of the bride's ladies. At the sound, the others, waiting women, pages, royal guards, turned and saw me. The guards and pages had all been warned. I could picture the word running around the court, loose as green apple stools. Magic clothes, he will wear them for the procession. If you wish to keep your post, you must be able to see. They all pretended, except the foreign women, who had, of course, not been told. Their black eyes all widened in surprise. But they were women. They said nothing. The men did. Guards, pages, the viceroy himself. All could not help showing the first shock on their faces, as Prince Jasper, second in line for the throne, stood before them naked. And all then covered their shock and murmured words of praise for the clothes I was not wearing. Extraordinary. Beautiful. Unsurpassed and from one inventive guard, who had undoubtedly spent time thinking up the compliment. He outshines the bride. I walked up to my brother's betrothed and offered her my arm. She took it, her face stony. I understood. To walk to her betrothal on the arm of a naked man. But I would make it all up to her later. After Florian's courtiers were exposed as liars and fools, and Florian himself disgraced as a weakling served by liars and fools, I would make it up to her when her red-lipped, green-nailed body was mine. My manhood had come erect. Well, so much the better. Let them see what a real man looked like, as he replaced the puny softling who was their crown prince. I held my shoulders back and my spine straight, and we started the processional walk from the cathedral and into the sunlight. Gasps, exclamations, lies. Look at Prince Jasper! Where did he get such robes? Never have I seen. The colours, the sash, the lightness. The lies. We reached the dais. Florian looked stunned, my father displeased. I bowed. Your Royal Highness, my brother, I present your bride. She moved from my arm and curtsied, very low, her ripe breasts bobbing. No one noticed. All eyes were still on me. Florian said, choking, Brother! But before he could finish his condemnation, for Florian, as I had always known, would never pretend to see what he has not, another voice spoke loudly. But the prince has no clothes on! He is naked! Everyone looked around. It was a child, the very youngest of the pages, standing in his velvets beside the dais. His golden curls shone in the sunlight, and his innocent face was turned upward to me. Too innocent a face! too blank, too vacant-eyed, the mouth a little agape. "'I told you!' someone hissed to my right. "'Not fit to be a page, no matter whose son he is. An idiot child!' Other hands reached out, grabbed the little boy, led him away. He turned to look over his shoulder at me, his white, empty face as innocent as an infant's, and as unfit as an infant to serve a king. I felt as if I had been kicked in the chest. My manhood abruptly wilted. Finally Florian spoke. "'A wonderful robe, my brother. No one has ever seen such clothing. You outshine us easily, and we are grateful for the trouble you have taken to array yourself so wonderfully to honour our beautiful bride.' There was a long exhalation from the crowd, a sigh of relief. The prince was not angry at having been outshone. 
Florian the generous-spirited. Florian the mild. I looked down at my body. To my eyes it looked naked as the day I was born. Frantically I tried to pinch folds of my tunic between my fingers. I could feel nothing. Florian continued graciously. I confess we did not expect such honour from you. It is a wonderful surprise. On this most happy day we are humbled to be reminded that things may not always be as they seem. And what in all of damned hell did he mean by that? Had he somehow divined my scheme? Had the two rogues told him? Was the whole court in on it, pretending to see clothing where there was none? Or was I indeed wearing a wonderful magic robe that only the honest could see? And I could not. Was I, or was I not, naked? I had to pretend I was not. I had to sit naked on the dais while the king blessed this union. I had to dine naked in the great hall. I had to dance naked, my manhood flopping like limp turkey wattle, and see people dancing at me covertly, in displeasure, in amazement, in amusement. Was the displeasure because I was obscene, or because I had tried to upstage the bride? Was the amazement at my wonderful magic clothes, or at my effrontery? Was the amusement because I had failed to outshine the bride, or because I was flaccid, a prince dancing naked in front of his whole court for the endless hours of the celebration? Things may not always be as they seem. The new princess smiled at me once as I danced with her, that bold smile from a painted face. But her eyes followed Florian, who treated her with gentle courtesy. She seemed, in her wordless way, to be charmed by him, and for the first time her ladies unveiled, and they all had bright red lips and low-cut dresses and thick eyelids painted green or violet or gold. They all glanced boldly, challengingly, at men. It is apparently the way of their country. View the cloth from one angle and it is one colour, view it from another and the colour shifts. Sorrel and Telliano have disappeared. I had paid them off. And who else did so as well? Is the new princess from the same country as they? Some unimaginable country where the magic arts are sewn into the fabric of the world? Or were Sorrel and Telliano doubly scoundrels who... I can no longer tell the fabric of truth from the lining of lies, not even my own. My head is dizzy. The flutes play and I whirl. Am I naked? In the dance, the betrothal celebration, which goes on for hours and hours as if it will never, ever end. Episode number 31 was Colin and Ishmael in the Dark by William Shun. It was the story of, well, Colin and Ishmael in the dark. It was generally well received. Epilonius said, Dark as an oubliette is right. Still, I was riveted the whole time. But part of me keeps thinking, this seems like an analogy for graduate school. Blaine Boy said, That was an absolutely stunning piece of literature, podcasting, whatever. The reading was superb, making Ishmael seem like a creepy psycho killer, kind of like Hannibal Lecter done by Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs. And DKT said, Creepiest story I heard this Halloween, hands down. Hell, in a long time. Absolutely loved it. I haven't read very much of William Shun's stuff before, but I hope we hear more of it here soon. And Marbell's reading chilled me. Nice to hear him narrating again. Dissenter Rain said, 
I hate to be on a negative streak, but I didn't like it. I was tempted several times during the 10 hour or so story, at least it felt that long, to just stop and listen to something I actually enjoyed, but the ending was pretty good, and if the story before that had been half the length, and it had had a reader that was a little less dry, I would have liked the overall story better, I think. If you've got something on your mind, don't keep us in the dark. Visit us at forum.escapeartist.info and tell us about it. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnitude.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Mark Twain said, Clothes make the man. Naked people have little or no influence in society. 